if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This morning, we have two passages, first from Romans 8.28, and then from Hebrews 11.32 through 12.2. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 11, 32 through 12, 2. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. Again, open with Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. These words have brought comfort to millions in difficult, stressful, and tragic situations. Yet, there are times in all of our lives we have to admit they're difficult to believe. So much of life seems to fly in the face of these words. So much that's happening leads us to question whether or not God is truly in control of this world, a world that seems so out of control. Back in 1965, Barry McGuire recorded a song entitled Eve of Destruction. It referenced wars, Violence in the Middle East, struggles with China, the threat of nuclear destruction, the lack of social justice, and hatred among neighbors. His chorus goes, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction? I've recently had a couple people ask me, do you think we're at the end times? seems like nothing's changed. 
Life was riddled with evil back in his day, and it's riddled with evil today. It's almost as though nothing has changed. Life doesn't seem to reflect the sovereignty of God or the love of God. And yet, six years after he recorded Eve of Destruction, McGuire accepted Christ as his Savior, perhaps because he was honest with the condition of humanity. And he realized that the only hope is Jesus Christ. But become a Christian didn't make everything in his life go the way that he wanted it to go. During a tough time in his life, when his son's life was in the balance, he almost left the faith. He recounts, I said to God, where's your healing power? It either works or it doesn't work. There's no two ways about it. You throw the switch and the light's on, and you can throw the switch and turn it off. That night I said, forget it. I'm out of here. I'm going to walk away from all of this. Many of us have had similar experiences with God. We become disillusioned with him when there are so many circumstances that seemingly deny his goodness. When life doesn't fit our agendas. Can we truly trust that God causes all things to work together for good? Let's pray. Our Lord, meet us with your truth today. Bring forth that with which we each struggle with in our lives to bring it before your altar, your truth, your word, to give us that ultimate rest and peace in your sovereignty. In Christ we pray, amen. So last week we began a two-part study exploring the implications of the promise in Romans 8.28. And we saw, by going through the life of Joseph, that God is for us. That he wants our best and our good, and he works us through roller coaster experiences in life. In the end, though, he desires our best and presents the best. We saw in Joseph that we're not like Joseph, that we often make judgments about circumstances and about God based on simple fragments of our stories. And we all do that. And it's what happened to Jesus' closest friends during the time Lazarus was critically ill. When Jesus heard the news, he waited until Lazarus had died before he went to Bethany to Lazarus' family. And when he got there, person after person questioned him. Lazarus' sister Mary, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When he got to her sister Mary, same words. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. And then the mourners at Mary's house, so many of them questioned, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They were all questioning Jesus. But 
if they'd only waited a few minutes, their questions would have been gone. All their judgments out of God would have been flipped. You see, Jesus had a greater purpose. God's glory. He wasn't about our agendas. He was about God's agenda. And so he stepped in front of that tomb and he called Lazarus forth and Lazarus came alive and walked up or perhaps waddled out still wrapped in his grave clothes. And we all saw that God is good and he works all things together for good. The story reminds us we have to wait until the end of the story before we make judgments about God, about what is good or bad. So we love stories like those about Joseph and those about Lazarus where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat, where every ugly event is turned into a stepping stone to something beautiful. And that's what we expect of God. And we see it in miracle after miracle in the scriptures. But what about the stories that don't turn out so well? What about those believers who are martyred for their faith? What about those who didn't see God's promises fulfilled? What about us? When our paths deviate from what we think God should be doing. Our passage this morning will help answer those questions. What we're going to look at is, we're going to see great victories that God does, but also seemingly great defeats of God's people of faith. And then we're going to see the great perspectives that those who suffered for the faith had, which we can learn from. So the great defeats. Chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it lists so many of the fathers of faith, beginning with Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Moses. You know, we bask in the stories of these great men and women. These are the stories that we tell our children over and over again. And since there's so many of these stories, the author... Verse 32 says, uh, we don't have time to go through all the stories. So he simply gives names and examples of what God does through men and women of faith. So we pick up in verse 32. He says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. You know, as we look at the stories of these people, yes, Tremendous things were done through them, but they, they, all, they all had clay feet. Gideon faltered in his faith. He tested God. Barak was fearful until he piggybacked on the courage of Deborah. Samson succumbed to the temptations of Delilah. Jephthah made a rash vow. David committed adultery and murder. Samuel supported nepotism as he placed his unfaithful and unjust sons as judges over Israel. 
They were all sinners through whom God did great things. So that encourages me, and I hope encourages all of us. God can do great things despite, despite us. But still, we need to be careful to not use anything God does through us as though it's proof we're so faithful. We need to recognize our sin. We need to seek, we need to receive the forgiveness that we have in Christ and pray for and desire the transformation. Yet God does great things through fallen people. So next... The author recounts a few of the God's miracles that he does through these and through others. We pick up in verse 33. These who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sore, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women receive back their dead by resurrection. We see in these stories many of the miracles and victories that were won by the people already listed, and we see in those others as well. The Daniels who stopped the mouths of lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were placed into the fiery furnace but came out untouched because they walked because Jesus was present with them. But they were actually ordinary men and women who connected to the power of God through faith, through trusting him. Pastor Stephen Cole points out the one thing in common to everything accomplished by faith says they were made strong even though they were weak. Faith requires recognizing our weakness but at the same time laying hold of God's strength. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. As Paul the Apostle explained, we have the treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God <clears throat> will be from him and not from us. So we see incredible victories that God accomplished but all of a sudden, this passage turns from the peaks to the valleys. But we also see that God is glorified in apparently great defeats. See, God's value system is different from ours. We cheer on the victories, but we don't see the victories in the defeats. And God says of those who suffered these defeats... The world was not worthy of them. So we read verses 35 through 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves in the earth. They realized this wasn't their real home. 
The descriptions fit many of the prophets. A few of them stand out in particular. The extra-biblical material tells us that Jeremiah was stoned. Isaiah was sawn in two. The reference, the most prominent reference here to those who were tortured, refusing their release, is most likely from the story of the apocryphal book in 2 Maccabees. You know, there are those, uh, even in Christian circles, who look at the first list of great victories and say, now that's what God does if you're a person of faith. He blesses you. But what do they do with the rest of the list of those who are suffering. And one preacher put it, after reading the first part of the list, you want to say, these guys on the second half of the list must not have had the right faith. But the author continues and says, all of these have gained approval through their faith. Those on the second half of the list were just as much people of faith as those in the first half. In fact, you could argue they had greater faith because it's not as easy to trust God when you're being scourged and stoned and sawn in two as it is when you're seeing foreign armies put to flight and the dead raised to life. While all of us, if we could, would sign up to be in the first group, we need to recognize that sometimes God is pleased to withhold spectacular results and bless us instead with his grace as our sufficiency. God puts those who suffered for the faith on a very special list. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. You know, it's not the way the world sees it. These people were dispensable. They were enemies to be tortured and extinguished. In their eyes, these people were not worthy to be in the world but God sees through different eyes he says the world was fortunate to have them they glorified God in ways few people do and they had a perspective of faith that we often lack which led them to find peace and suffering purpose and God's glory even if they didn't receive the promise we read in verses 39 and 40. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what's he saying in these verses? He's simply saying they lived in a different dispensation than we live in. They lived under the old covenant where they didn't see Christ. They might have seen him in shadows, and but we see him clearly because he has come, and we see what he has done for us. We know he has died for our sins. We know he is raised again, and we live under the new covenant where Jesus Christ is our chief priest, where his sacrifice brings us into relationship with God 
in the Holy of Holies, where Jesus himself is the Holy of Holies, God's presence with us, where he sends us the Holy Spirit to work within our hearts and write the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law on our hearts. We have something very special they didn't have. Yet, they too will be made perfect along with us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the author's point is that if the Old Testament saints were faithful through all their trials, even though they didn't receive the promise of Christ in the flesh, how much more should we be faithful since we have Christ? So, what led to their incredible faith? What can we learn from them about their faith that we could put into our lives? See, they had a great perspective. They looked at life differently than most of us do in the 21st century. They had great perspectives. They looked at life as God looks at it. They looked at life through God's eyes. And there's three particular perspectives we're going to dig into. The first is they had an eternal perspective. They knew that they would rise to a better life. We see this in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept their release so that they might rise to a better life. So I said, this is most likely a reference to Maccabees chapter 7, 2 Maccabees. And just to give you a, a little bit of the background, I pick up in verse 1. It also happened that seven brothers with their mothers were arrested and tortured with whips and scourged by the king to force them to eat pork in violation of God's law. One of the brothers, speaking for the others, said, what do you expect to learn by questioning us? We're ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. The king was only too happy to oblige him. The torture was so brutal and inhumane that I am not comfortable sharing it with you this morning. But here's what they said as they were being tortured. The first brother, the Lord is looking on us and truly has compassion on us. Not what I would have felt, but by faith it's what he realized. The second brother, as he was being put to death, you're depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to life again forever. The third brother, put out his tongue and his hands to be severed. And he said, It was from heaven that I received these. For the sake of his laws, I disregard them. From him, I hope to receive them again. The fourth brother, when he was near death, said, It's my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, there will be no resurrection of the dead. And so it went son after son until they threatened the last son. His mother, having witnessed the death of six sons, they asked her to intercede, don't you want to save the life of your seventh son? And she turned to her son and said, in his mercy, 
He will give you back both breath and life. They had an eternal perspective. They could see God was offering them in eternity. They could endure the worst that life had to offer by faith because they recognized that this life is short in comparison with eternity. When we look through the eyes of eternity, we'll recognize what the Apostle Paul saw. Momentary light affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal. Things that are unseen, they're eternal. That's what they saw. Second, they didn't draw conclusions about God from fragments of their story. Through faith, they were able to see the end of their stories and know that God has their good as well as his glory in the end. And so that's why they are witnesses to us today. As Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. They are a cloud of witnesses. Now, this isn't speaking about them being up there witnessing what we're doing. Thinking that these saints all see the things we do in secret. They see what's going on inside of our hearts and so we better be embarrassed because so many are looking on. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about witnesses being in a courtroom and giving testimony. And they're saying no matter what we've gone through, God remains faithful. Many people reading what they went through would say God isn't faithful. Those who went through it would say God is faithful. So imagine the prosecutor putting Isaiah on the stand saying, so you're telling me that God is faithful? Look at the commission he gave you. Go preach and everyone will be hardened. Nobody's going to listen to you. They didn't listen to you. They were hardened to you. And what did you get for it? What did you get for following God? You were ridiculed. You were tortured. You were imprisoned. You were cut in two. You're going to tell me God is faithful? And Isaiah would stand there and say, yes, my Lord is faithful. He is loving. He is sovereign. And I would do it over a thousand times again for his glory. Imagine the prosecutor bringing this mother up. Maybe you don't care for yourselves, but what about your seven sons? You're telling me that God is faithful? How foolish can you be? You watched your sons butchered before your eyes, hands severed, but you didn't see the hands growing back. God didn't save them. Where was God's promises where he says, I'll, cry, I'll save those who cry out to dis in distress? And she would reply, Oh, my God is faithful. Yes, my sons received back their hands, every limb. 
there with the Lord now forever. He's faithful. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Third, they sought the glory of God above their own comfort. They had the attitude of Jesus that's described in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' ultimate joy was to glorify the Father. We see this in his prayer shortly before he's arrested. He opens it with, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame because he was passionate about glorifying the Father. It was his ultimate joy. He didn't consider himself the central character of his own story. God was. God's glory, not his life, was his passion. And I believe this is true of every hero in Romans chapter 11. Last week, I shared the illustration about the puzzle and how I would throw away the piece and say that was an ugly piece, I don't want it. And I was rebuked by an eight-year-old girl who said, you can't throw away the pieces because when the puzzle is complete, even the ugly pieces become beautiful. And so we looked at the life of Joseph and saw that every ugly piece in Joseph's life was actually a stepping stone to the beautiful end of the story. That story was not only for Joseph's good, it was for God's glory because he was moving his chosen people forward. So you see, people like Isaiah don't look at the puzzle as their life story, but they see themselves as a piece of God's puzzle, of his grand story. You see, he's not the central character. God is. The puzzle isn't simply ours. It's God's. And we are pieces of it. In many of our lives, we say, this, is, this was a good life. And people would say, well, that was a good life. And boy, God was good. But others of us have more difficult lives. Our faith is tested like theirs. And the world would look in and say, that's an ugly piece. That whole life is an ugly piece. But Isaiah, these heroes of faith, would say, oh, you may think it was an ugly piece, but I know when God's grand story is finished, my life will be one of the most beautiful pieces. It glorified God. It shined brightly. See, each of our lives is a single thread, a single thread in God's grand tapestry that moves toward his glory. Each of our lives is of eternal value when it glorifies God. Now, I mentioned Barry McGuire at the beginning of the sermon. He knew the pain of this world and he thought he found the solution in Christ, only to be disappointed when Christ seemed to let him down. He was ready to walk away from it all 
At that point, I read his words. Then I thought, well, where would I go? Would I go back to live life like I used to? Dive back into the septic tank of filth and immorality and debauchery that God pulled me out of? I thought, man, I can't do that. Then I thought about my years in Christ and what God had done in my life and the transformation that's taken place within me. And I realized what Peter said, which in essence is, where would I go? There's only one. There's no life outside of Christ. And I thought, I know that to be true through my own experience. So I began to think about when Jesus first started his ministry and said, follow me. And when he finished it, he said, abide in me. And that was my moment that I knew that I was going to follow him. I also had to abide in him. To abide in means to live in him and to let him live in me. So on that night in Ireland, I said, okay, God, I'll never ask you for anything again. Do with me as you will. From that day onwards, I let go. I have no agenda. I have no plan for the future. All I have is this moment with you here and this microphone, this conversation, and I don't know where God's going to bring me next. We all have moments in our spiritual journeys when we struggle with God. The peace and joy comes when we realize it's not about us. It's about Him. It's not about our agenda. It's about His agenda. We can trust Him with our lives. There's a great cloud of witnesses gone before us who've reached the other side and they declare, they cry out today, yes, you can trust God. He is faithful. He is faithful indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words. They encourage us this morning. But as Jesus said, we need to abide in you. For when we cut off from you, we will dry up. We need to live in these truths that you've given us. We need to live in the strength of your word. We need to live at the foot of the cross where you've proven your love. We need to live entering the empty tomb and knowing there is resurrection after life. Lord, ground us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we abide in Christ, and the truths we heard today will continue to resonate throughout our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.